What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey everyone, welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to a special edition of the Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm here alongside with Rod, and we're thrilled to welcome our guest, Jack Ebling, who, as most of you know, is a longtime LSJ columnist and is currently the host of The Drive with Jack show. How are you doing? Great. Thanks so much for joining the show. Uh, thanks for asking. How's Rod doing? I'm great. So uh, as before we get into the heart of our discussion, and this is I'm kind of conceiving of this as our our back to the future episode, because we're going to touch on some things that are prospective and retrospective in nature. But before I get into that, uh, Jack, you you just got a, a rather you or you got an award that puts you in rather unique company that I wanted to make sure our listeners were aware of. Is it the NSCA? Is that the, have I got the acronym right? NSMA, it's the National Sports Media Association. There we go. And and Jack won Michigan Sportscaster of the Year for the third time, correct? Correct. And you've also won, in your previous career iteration, you won Sports Writer of the Year three times, right? As Jack would say, that means you're really old. (laughs) Yeah, uh, but that puts you in very unique company. You're the only person in Michigan to ever do that. Is that true nationwide as well? The only person uh, nationally who's done it. There was another guy who actually had three and I think seven uh, uh, writing awards, but he did it in multiple states. Ah, well, I'm the only person to have done it representing one state and Michigan can't get rid of me. <laughs> and you uh you were gracious enough to send some photos of the uh the event to me it looks like you were operating in the big time i saw pictures with uh ernie johnson charles barkley i think i saw scott van pelt in there yeah. uh must have been a hell of a night it was uh it's it started off with jane kennedy who wow was- uh, you know, kind of a big deal when we were growing up. And yeah. he's the first female to have that kind of a role in a major network. So uh, I had some time to spend with her. And then uh, it's great to see all of the representatives from around the country come in from all 50 states. And then we had a great chance uh, with all the seminars to do critiques. And they brought in probably 75 young journalists from everywhere from Alaska to Germany and we critiqued their work. So it was a, it was a blast and uh, you know, just thrilled. I've had a chance to be there. Fantastic. Well, congratulations again for that. Um, So then to get into it, uh, as I said, back to the future, but we'll, we'll reverse it. We'll start with the future. 
Okay. Uh, a storyline that has been massive in sports in general over the last almost a week, I guess it is now, as we're recording this on a Wednesday night, is the Big Ten adding USC and UCLA to the conference uh, beginning with the 2024-25 season, if I recall correctly. Now, we all know this stuff is driven almost entirely by football, but this is a basketball show. So yeah. I've got kind of a two-parter on this for you. Yeah. And the first part is, what do you think the addition of those two programs is going to mean to Big Ten basketball? We know UCLA is a blue blood, obviously. USC right. has had much more of a mixed track record but what do you think it's going to mean for the conference and for those schools is it going to help them in the long run it's going to mean a lot more frequent flyer miles for the media i guarantee that. <laughs> that's 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 for starters yeah and uh, maybe a nice trip to california in the winter that's okay too but as far as uh, the recognition usc has had some good teams but hasn't really moved the needle in basketball right ucla certainly has one of the storied programs uh, with all of the national championships, John Wooden winning, uh, you know, 10 of them in 12 years. So from that standpoint, uh, it could add a little bit of juice, uh, but I don't think the big 10 is necessarily done. And whether it's Notre Dame or some people are talking about Stanford, Oregon, or Washington, some people are looking to go East. I heard today that North Carolina or Virginia would yep. be uh, certainly a team that they would a school they would want to look at for a lot of reasons. So uh, it, it's all about the dollars, guys. Uh, let's not kid ourselves. The fact that now every Big Ten school is going to be in a position with the contract after this to make a hundred million dollars a year. You think that Breslin Center was built for less than thirty? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's pretty, and and the gaps between what schools in the Big Ten and SEC are making or slated to make after this uh, latest media rights negotiation is over for the Big Ten. The gap between those schools and everybody else, just on an annual basis, you're now getting to a range where it's 50, 60 million per school, I think, every year. So it's yeah. just compounding over time. Um, so you don't really see this necessarily being – a big boost for the big 10 then in a basketball sense. What do you, what do you think about perhaps opening up the West coast a little bit more than it has been for, for other big 10 schools in terms of recruiting? Uh, that could happen. Uh, I would think that USC and UCLA would still be hard to beat for players there. I don't th think they're going to be that many top prospects who want to leave LA to come to Madison in January, <laughs> February, but they, there may be some who say, you know, I like the big 10 or maybe I have some relatives there. You never know what's going to lead players to make these choices. And uh, as I was recruited in California, he was just out there last week. So uh, I, I think you're going to see some of that go on, but I don't think that's going to be the primary reason for doing it. Okay. And as, and as I said, we all know, this stuff is driven by football and in particular by you at the brand that is USC yeah. um, basketball is the tag along as is everything else. Right. But um, it, 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 well, I was curious to know what you thought about that. Now, as a second part of this prospective look, I'd like to go a little bit broader and that's no. my understanding is that we're very quickly going to be entering 
a period where the major conference schools, meaning at least for certain the Big Ten and the SEC, are likely to be leaving the NCAA and creating. And we don't know the time frame on that. You hear everything from, you know, fairly imminently to Jack Swarbuck from Notre Dame was quoted earlier this year talking about the mid 2030s, which is when all the various conference rights deals are up. But I suspect he may have been talking his ACC book with that. I don't know. Um, My question has been, and I haven't really seen a satisfactory answer yet. If that happens, and if if the major schools leave the NCAA structure, obviously, again, we know this is driven primarily by football, but what do you think happens to the NCAA tournament and can you have a college basketball postseason that retains the current level of interest if you do not have an environment like the NCAA tournament where you have 360 some schools in Division One of varying sizes competing with each other at that level? You lose, it seems to me, you lose the charm of what makes the tournament work if it's just restricted to big schools. One, do you think that's going to happen? And two, what do you think about that in terms of what it might mean for interest in the sport? I love the NCAA tournament as it's currently constituted, but guys, I'll tell you, all you need to remember is three words, follow the money. (laughs) Right. All you need to know. And if you can do that, you'll be on the right track. I think what you're going to have is somewhere between 32 and 40 schools between the big 10 and the sec and then you may have a third conference you may have some amalgamation of pac-12 big 12 acc schools so you could wind up with 50 no more than 64 that's that's about the max you could get uh and there's talk that all of those schools would then be in the ncaa tournament and the other schools they could have their own tournament But the fact is that all of the money to support the NCAA comes from that basketball tournament. Right. So why should those schools, if they've broken away for football, suddenly hand over all of that revenue to the NCAA? They don't need the NCAA. Yeah. And and that's, that's what I've wondered about it is would you, would you conceivably have a scenario where, this new entity in the NCAA would co-host the thing and divide the money. And then you get into questions about, well, what schools are responsible for most of that money? And maybe it's on, it gets very complicated, but so, so you think at the end of this, where we are is we have a very, a vastly, vastly different postseason structure for college basketball, as well as college football. I think wherever the powers that be, can make an extra dollar and 32 cents. <laughs> That's what they're going right. to do. And I think that is for those power schools, the ones that have the biggest alumni bases, the biggest names that are going to draw the most fans. Uh, they're going to be the ones in a power position and they're going to use that power. Okay. So yeah. I, I guess then the conclusion here would be, for those of us who love the tournament as it's currently constructed, enjoy it for as long as you can. Yeah. And you might have two tournaments and you might fall in love with the second tournament more than the first one. Well, you know, that's an interesting point over, over the winter. I read 
and I'm drawing a blank on who the author was, but it was a major publishing house, put out a book on the history of Catholic college basketball. Mm-hmm. And a lot of time was spent in on the period in the 40s and 50s when the NIT and the NCAA were each holding separate tournaments. And it really was an environment where you could claim with some legitimacy, at least some of the time, that you had two champions and not one. Because it's not as if the schools from one tournament, the school that won it, would then play the winner of the NIT, let's say. That didn't happen. So that scenario you're describing brings that to my mind, that we might get into this world where we have two different things going on and never the twain shall meet. Yeah. And, you know, you lose the Cinderella aspect of yeah. Maryland, Baltimore County beating the overall number one seed in Virginia. But that's OK. Uh, you can still have upsets. You can still have surprises along the way. And if you don't like surprises, then don't have the tournament. Just have the top four teams in the poll play. I was just, so, I, I mean, the way you look at it, too, then so, you know, your, your Cinderella is going to be the Nebraska, the Minnesota Although I feel like the one thing, of course, now that, of course, the lure of this determinant, as uh, Rod was mentioning, is the fact that you have good teams that are, you know, that are small versus you have teams that just perform poorly. And, of course, now you have that competition. That's not going to be the same. Uh, The teams that are in a power position are not going to share their dinner. I'm not seeing. Yeah. It used to be, guys, that university presidents were academicians. They may have academic interests now, but they're fundraisers. <laughs> that's a very good point. Yes. Right. That's absolutely yeah. true. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's always a risk. And Rod and I were talking about this a couple episodes ago. It is absolutely the risk of college basketball. You can, that you may, by, you follow money too much in certain directions, you may actually destroy or at least really change the sport and actually maybe financially hurt yourself in the end. But that's a little ways down the road and it's hard to know until you, run that experiment well i'm talking about that and all the changes guys and you know where we are with immediate eligibility transfers and name image and likeness i heard from a coach last night that within 10 years the players will be signing contracts and uh, they can be cut and there's even a chance they can be traded (laughs) sure well i i don't think there's much doubt that sooner or later, and and as I understand it, it's part of the driver for these major schools to get out of the NCAA. I think we're going to see an environment where they are treated as employees. So that would go along with what you're suggesting. And and I think that's, that's, you can make a very cogent argument that that's absolutely legitimate from a legal perspective and that definitionally that's how they should be treated. But boy, if and when it happens, it's sure going to bring some changes. And I had not heard anybody go so far as as where you just went. But that is interesting. (laughs) If you want to go way back, uh, there was a time when the earth was flat and not just with Kyrie Irving. I mean, (laughs) that's what it really was. There was a time and, uh, you know, you can read about it where they didn't have indoor plumbing. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually, you know, that changed. So people right. get used to this and it's kind of a survival of the fittest things and uh, a thinning yeah. of the herd. Yeah. 
Well, you, and you don't know how things are going to work out. Is you know, does the is your loyalty to your school does it matter if the if the players aren't truly students and they become? I, yeah, we can argue that. Are you really a student if you're there one year and <laughs> right as they are, as many are now? But it, th- those things again, it's just it, you can't run a you know a, a double experiment and see which is, which is going to be the best outcome. You just kind of run with what where the forces are moving you. And as you mentioned, money is what drives things. I think we're eventually going to look at college basketball. Mm-hmm all college sports, not the NCAA, we're going to call it PSOC, P-S-O-C. It stands for Pro Sports on Campus. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, when you, when you talk about, you know, nothing's necessarily new under the sun, this isn't totally, this kind of scenario isn't totally unprecedented. I mean, I would assume some of our listeners know, if you go back into the annals of the beginning of college football in particular, yeah, the game was rife with, with what they called ringers oh, yeah. guys who weren't even pretending to go to school. <laughs> so nothing's ever really truly new under the sun, I guess. Right. And I think it's important to, to recognize that things will get reorganized as you get close to those decisions. And it may, you may have an NCA like thing that has yeah. rules that you say, Oh, that actually feels like a college experience experienced still and, or something along those lines. And it just depends where the public is. Right. So I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. And one of the questions I had, I'm, um, when I came to town, I was, well, I was pretty little, but I remember Judd Heathcote was a coach. Social media didn't exist back then. And so your access and your ability to kind of understand who they are as coaches was limited. I mean, you, you saw things through the media, but you know, your, your access was a lot lim- limited as a fan. And so it's hard to know kind of what things were like with Judd. Can you describe what the difference is covering Judd versus Izzo and like, you know, uh, both them as baby people and how they run the programs and how they interact with the media and those sorts of things. Well, two great guys to cover. Um, pretty different in some ways. Uh, I got my hair blown back by both of them over the years, but I had very different <laughs> relationships with them. Judd was very intimidating. Tom is not. Tom is everybody's best friend. And uh, Judd was kind of like a father figure to me. I used to run important decisions by him, and uh, he would always tell me I was full of it. And, uh, you know, he would call periodically, uh, usually early in the morning, and I'd hold the phone out about eight inches and just let him go. And he'd rant, and then he'd call back two hours later and say, when we playing golf? So he was he was very different, and he had ideas about what the media should be. Uh, but Tom has taken some of uh, Judd, I'd say the best parts of Judd, and uh, left some of the other parts behind. Tom understands what the media's job is, so he makes that part very easy. One of the biggest differences was Judd hated recruiting. In fact, he would go once a year to St. Cecilia's in Detroit, and it was always a big deal. Judd's in the building. And uh, one time, Dr. Tom Davis came up to me, and I'd just written a piece on him for Basketball Times. He said, hey, I got an idea for you. I said, what's that? He said, well, you know, Heathcote's never here. Why don't you get a blow-up doll of Judd, and you can stick it up in the corner, and everyone will think it's him. They'll be impressed. And no one wants to get close enough to the son of a bitch anyway. So they won't even know it's not him. Uh, obviously, they, they didn't do that. But Tom is everywhere. He's omnipresent when it comes to recruiting. Uh, 
And uh, the only reason he recruits seven days a week is because he can't recruit eight. Do, do you think, I, you know, Tom always goes on about how he's not a fan of Twitter and Facebook and social media in general. Yeah. But I feel like there's a sort of a underlying savviness to his understanding of social media and how you get you get eyeballs on yourself and on for recruits to see you. And he doesn't manipulate, but he just understands that, like you said, understands the media more. Do you feel he's more sophisticated in those venues than maybe he lets on? Maybe not social media, but in other aspects of the media, Eric, yes. And all of his psychology is built on relationships. And that's the thing about social media is he can't develop relationships because he can't see the person. He can't meet the person. He doesn't understand who, who is writing and why they're writing and the lack of accountability. If Tom Izzo came on your podcast, uh, within eight minutes, I guarantee you he would use the word accountability. That is very important to him. And right now, one of the things that drives him absolutely fruity is the fact that people can say anything and write anything and have different, you know, you never have to get in front of somebody. And when I was covering Judd's team during the Scott Skiles years, I got thrown out of practice three straight days. Now, he, uh, John Mizzo is one of the few coaches in the country who even has media anywhere near his practices. So uh, it, it has changed so much, but they were different guys. And uh, together, when you think that this is 46 years and counting of Michigan State basketball with the two of them, pretty amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I, I think sticking with Judd as, as the subject here. And I want you to correct me if I've, if I've got this wrong, but I don't think I do. I have a very distant memory of you writing a column in 1990, just to refresh friends memory. This was, I guess it would have been maybe the winter of 89. So the 89, 90 season Great memory. ended up being a great year for Michigan state, kind of maybe a year early versus what people were, were thinking would happen, just to refresh our listeners' memories. So that season was Steve Smith's junior year. That great recruiting class, arguably other than Magic and Jay Vincent's year, the best recruiting class Judd ever had with yeah. Matt Steginga, Mike Peplowski, Mark Montgomery, Parrish Hickman, John Zuloff. Those yeah. guys were sophomores. MSU had been to the NIT the year before, but I don't think there were expectations they would be a Big Ten champion and a sweet 16 team which in the end they were that year we hadn't gotten to that point though they were playing in december in the great alaskan shootout and one of the other schools in that tournament again if i've got this right was kansas state and Correct. kansas state was coached by a guy named lon kruger now do i have this am i remembering this correctly that you wrote Absolutely. something Spot okay. On. okay you wrote <laughs> something about lon kruger perhaps being a potential successor to Judd. Yeah. Um, why did you think that is the first part? And then I want to get to the second part after that. Well, I thought it because I thought Michigan state would have to, at some point enter the 20th century and uh, not the 21st. <laughs> and I thought that, you know, they might want to get a coach who was just a little more contemporary. And I thought that Izzo and Lon Kruger were both great communicators. But the funny part about that story, guys, is we're in Anchorage, Alaska, and we have impossible deadlines. I mean, you're talking <laughs> about games that start at midnight. And uh, I had to have a column in. 
I had to have what they call a plug column. And it's what appears in the first row of the paper. And then they go back and they stop and they put your other column in after the game. So I figured 30% of the people would get this throwaway column. And I said, you know, I'm going to write something about these two guys. And if you watch this game, you'll get a view of the future of Michigan State basketball. And I, I knew them both pretty well. So I wrote this column about Michigan State's next coach is going to be on the court tonight. Little did I realize that there would be a press breakdown. The web would snag. So they never got the game column into the paper. And it went to 100% of the state journal subscribers, which at that point for a Sunday paper was about 100,000. It was much larger than it is now. Well, that included Judd Heathcote, who when he got home, saw this <laughs> column and called me up and he said, you son of a bitch, you're trying to get me fired. And I said, I'm not trying to get you fired, but if you keep going, you might do that yourself. And uh, it turned out that, uh, you know, it was one guy who got the job and the other guy who took the Ad Atlanta Hawks job uh, when Tom decided not to take that. Uh, Lon Kruger was the one who eventually got it. And then they, they coached against each other in the Big Ten. But it was just a crazy thing. I needed a, a column and I really did believe what I was writing. It wasn't like I was just making stuff up but I certainly didn't intend that it would get the exposure it got. So you actually, at that point, that, that bit, I don't remember. Um, but at that point, even you believed there was a reasonable possibility that Tom Ezzo would be elevated to the job. Yeah. I didn't know whether Judd would retire in uh, 1992 or 2032. <laughs> and if you asked him, uh, he would have been coaching from the grave. So, <laughs> Uh, you know, I said, well, whenever the time is right, I don't think it's going to happen eventually, but I knew Izzo was the guy. I knew he, he had the right stuff. He came in and he completely changed Michigan state basketball in terms of the recruiting, the class, the guys you mentioned, Steve Smith, that great class of all those sophomores in 1990, those were his guys. Right. And they kind of came in spite of Judd, most of the recruits, even the ones who eventually appreciated Judd, uh, it wasn't really a big recruiting point, the fact that Judd Heathcote was going to be the coach. As my last follow-up here, if certain people within the Michigan State administration had yeah. been successful yeah. in denying what Judd wanted to have happen, which we know, with yeah. uh, looking back, is what happened, elevating Tom Izzo, designating him as his coach in waiting, Right. If they had been successful in stopping that, is there anybody other than Lon Kruger that you think would have definitively been on the radar at that time? Well, I think there would have been a strong push, and there was some of this behind the scenes, to get a black coach. You have to remember that Michigan State at that point had not had Bobby Williams or Mel Tucker. Right. Had not had Merritt Norvell or Clarence Underwood. So hadn't had a black head coach in any major sport, hadn't had a black AD. It, it had had a black president. Yeah, Clifton Wharton. Clifton Wharton going way back, but that was beyond the time frame most people would remember. So uh, at that point, there was a push. And also the hot team at that point, the team that a lot of people really thought was sexy and they wanted to be like, 
was Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And Nolan Richardson, 40 minutes, uh, you know, hell, that whole thing. Uh, so I think that there would have been a push to try to find a black coach who could have come in. I don't know if that would have been tried to get John Cheney. I don't know who it would have been. Uh, it would have been somebody they thought would have been a splashy hire, probably would have been a disciplinarian, and uh, that would have been a direction. But Judd wasn't wasn't leaving without the jaws of life until he got his <laughs> <going. laughs> What, and along those lines, what do you think the the job outlook? I mean, obviously Tom Izzo has got a limited time frame yeah. at this point, probably five to ten years. Yeah. How has this job changed in, in the university, maybe athletically, than it was back in back during Tom Izzo's hire? I mean, I imagine it's a lot more desirable job, partly because of the basketball program, but I think you just generally the athletic program is just in much better, I don't run better or something. It's just different than it was back then. Yeah, it, it's a business now. Then, you know, it was a bunch of former coaches and it was kind of a club and, you know, they'd sit around, have coffee. Now it's, it's all about efficiency and it's run like a corporation. Uh, I think that that's all has to do with the money again, you know, Judd's first year at Michigan state and this bothered him until he died. He made $25,000 and he got really <laughs> mad at me one time because I said, you know, Judd, that was really terrible you made twenty five thousand dollars tell me about it well the really bad part was that half the fans thought you were overpaid <laughs> so, now, now that's that's a line i could have seen okay. yeah <laughs> that's a line i could have seen him using yeah. very easily yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice to I, see he got some of it back <laughs> i like to use those kinds of lines on him uh one point and it was his first year. Michigan State played North Carolina. And it was a horrible snowy night. And they got about 5,500. I think they listed 6,000 in Jenison Fieldhouse. And Judd was just furious. And uh, so, yeah, people here, they don't understand basketball. You got him, you know, it's going on and on and on and on. And I said, you know what, Judd? I got an answer for you. I know how you can guarantee a sellout. You can bring another team in like this. You won't have this problem. He said, well, what's that? I said, well, you know, uh, Everett and Eastern are playing and everybody wants to see it. Why don't you bring that game in and you could like be the preliminary game. <laughs> <laughs> you punched me with that one too. I used to have a, a bruise that never went away in my left <laughs> Well, I want to be very respectful of time. I know you have to go, Jack. But thank you so much for being on the Final Four. It's not on the, the schedule. We really appreciate it. And I know our listeners will uh, enjoy listening as well. Thanks so much, Eric and Rod. Appreciate it. Rod, it won't be long and you'll be back on the drive with Jack. I'm uh, looking forward to it. Thank you. Take care, guys. Mr. World here, working the red carpet at the big awards show. You know, the paparazzi keeps asking me, what are you wearing? Well, I'm wearing the hottest styles from Eyeglass World, of course. Eyeglass World has all the nominees for best stylish frames. Even better, they're the winner for best supporting prices. Get hundreds of designer frames for hundreds less at Eyeglass World, the world's best way to buy glasses. Visit eyeglassworld.com to schedule your eye exam online.